0: Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this uh, time to come apart as we approach the Sabbath hours and the rest that's represented there. I'm impressed, Lord, uh, as I've looked through this topic more and more, that we truly are fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, The more we learn, we think we know so much, but yet the more we learn, we realize we're just scratching the surface of the, the beautiful designs, the beautiful mechanisms that you've built into the human Uh, body and the human mind and the human psyche we want to explore those topics today Lord but we don't just want to be edified we don't just want to access information we want to spend this time drawing closer to you so may the time we spend together especially by the time we're done may we have a greater appreciation for the great sacrifice that you made on our behalf That you came down to understand to appreciate and to experience life as we experience it may that give us courage Um, As we approach our lives, as we approach the experiences of those around us, that we can have an influence, Lord, for you and for others, and see people drawn into your kingdom. We ask this in your name. Amen. I want to start with a quote that um, won't immediately jump out at you why I'm talking about this uh, quote. Because this quote is about evangelism, and this seminar is not about evangelism, it's about epigenetics and inheritance. But you'll see, I, this, this quote is important because as we go through this talk today, by necessity, when you talk about genetics, you're talking about parenting and parents, both your parents and yourself being a parent. Now, when you do that and then you talk about the failures that you have as parents, the failures that your kids have, there's a natural tendency towards feeling uh, some guilt, uh, some shame, some fear. When you look at your parents, there's a natural tendency to feel, you know, why did you do that and leave me with this heritage? Um, why weren't you different and raise me a different way? So I just want to lay that groundwork. Now this quote is going to call to attention how we ought to approach things. Okay? It says the shortness of time is urged as an incentive for us to make righteousness, to seek righteousness, and to make Christ our friend. True statement, right? We typically use this approach in evangelism very commonly in our conversations with others, and it's true. Shortness of time is urged as an incentive to seek righteousness and to make Christ our friend. This is not the great motive. The shortness of time is not the great motive. It savors of selfishness. Is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God be held before us to compel us through fear to right action? This ought not to be. So she's, she's saying there, here's a motivation. Is the shortness of time a motivation? Yes. Is it the great motivation? It's not the best motivation. There's a better motivation. There's a better way of processing that information. And the better way is what? Jesus is attractive. He is full of love, mercy, and compassion. So as we talk through the different studies we're going to look at, the different principles of genetic inheritance, and you will probably if you're like a normal person, a normal parent or a normal child, you'll feel in yourself the tendency towards feeling, I wish I'd been a better parent. Why didn't I do things this way? Or why did I do things this way? And I'm seeing things in my kids that I feel responsible for. That's a natural tendency. You're going to feel that. I feel that. Or if you're a child and you don't have any kids, you'll look back and say, you know, why did dad do things that way? If he'd done things this way, why didn't they send me to Arise and AFCO? like other kids got sent to. Why didn't my dad become an Adventist until he was, you know, in his 60s I grew up without, with one Christian parent without another Christian parent? If he'd done things differently, I might be better off. So you're gonna go through those kinds of feelings and when you have that temptation to, to feel guilty or ashamed about how you did things, or frustrated or angry towards how your parents did things, I want you to remember there's a better motivation Don't give in to fear, don't give in to guilt, but remember, Jesus is attractive. That's the way we want to approach these things. That's the way we want to approach how we relate to our children, that's the way we want to approach how we relate to our parents, no matter what their experience is. All right, so here's a passage that we want to start with today, and this is in several places in the Old Testament. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but by no means clears the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, the NIV just kind of translates that as some people interpret it. They say what it means is he's punishing the children for the sin of the parents. Well, we want to explore today what does it mean to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Now, we have counterbalancing scriptures to this one, right? Thank you. Is that better? Okay. All right, if that's not good, uh, just give me a high sign so I can, we can try and fiddle a little bit more. Now, we have counterbalancing scriptures. That's right? Ezekiel 18 talks about the fathers not being held accountable for the, the, the transgressions um, of their fathers. Children aren't held responsible for the transgressions of their ancestors. But then what does this mean? What does it mean to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations? Another verse that says something similar, Leviticus 26. Because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away. It almost sounds like there's an arbitrary or almost vindictive approach that God takes that if you don't fall into line, I'm not just gonna allow these things to happen to you. I'm gonna impose punishment on your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. And in fact, that's how the NFA took it. They took it as punishment. Well, we have some good friends in the atheist community who read through the Bible, and they have an interpretation for this. This is Christopher Hitchens, um, one of the so-called new atheists. Um, You may have been familiar He wrote a book probably, it's been about 10 years ago now, called God is Not Great. He's commenting on this uh, commandment, the second commandment, and also this other passage. A dire warning that the sins of the fathers will be visited on their children even unto the third and fourth generation. This negates, now, now he's going to interpret this passage, so let's see. How, what is he thinking about as he reads through this passage? This negates, this passage, this commandment, this, the moral and reasonable idea that children are innocent of their parents' offenses. So now look at what he's saying here for just a second. He's reading that passage, and he's saying what this passage says is that innocence is negated, i.e., they're guilty. Right? So he's interpreting this passage as God is ascribing guilt to the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren for the mistakes of their parents. Right? Negating innocence is the same as saying accounting guilty. That's how he's interpreting this. Now here's a book with a great title. Um, God hates you, hate him back, making sense of the Bible. Uh, Werleman is another sort of new fundamentalist atheist. Um, I wouldn't encourage uh, this, but I haven't read I've just kind of skimmed through it. But basically, he goes through the Bible, reads through the whole thing, and picks out any passage that is sort of can be interpreted negatively or sounds negative and just strings those all together with his commentary on it. Um, it's, it's quite a tome. But anyway, this is his uh, take on this same passage. Interesting is the second commandment in which God promises to condemn up to four generations of a sinner's descendants. Now, again, here's this idea of condemnation. So his perception is he's, he's portraying something. God's condemning offspring of people for the mistakes of their parents. That's the interpretation he's putting on this passage. And the NIV sort of leaves that flavor to it, right? It said punishing the grandchildren, great-grandchildren. So we want to understand, is that what's going on? He says, further, further suggests that no matter how righteous your judeo christian life should be, this will matter for naught if your great-great-grandfather believed in a sun god and you are thus surely doomed. So again, the, the picture that they are imposing on this passage is that God is pronouncing guilt or condemnation or judgment on people for the, the actions or the mistakes of their ancestors. And we want to understand is that what this is talking about today? Well, there's other passages that bring out um, these ideas about um, ancestral, prenatal, perinatal kinds of influences. Now notice, here's Psalms 58. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Psalms 51, uh, the repentance chapter that many of us are familiar with. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Okay. Now again, we can, we can perceive this as God making value judgments and, and, and uh, controlling the moral destiny of people, or we can appreciate that what God is bringing out here is that there's influences being brought to bear on, on, on us as individuals from the very earliest time of conception. And the influences that are brought to bear are bigger than just the, what happens to one individual. Psalm 71 gives us a little balance to this, Okay. By you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. So notice there's two forces at work here in the womb, right? There's two forces at work here. One is the force of those opposed to God's side, the things that are happening in the womb, estranged from the womb, going astray from birth, um, in sin conceived, shapen in iniquity. But on the other side, God's got an influence. He's working not just from when we're born, right? God's exerting influences on us as parents, as mothers, in every way he can, not just from birth, but from conception. I've been upheld to you from birth. You took me out of my mother's womb. It's being brought out there. Now, Ellen White also brings out these same types of ideas um, that we just looked at in Scripture. There are very many who claim to serve God, but who have no experimental knowledge of him. They have not a personal relationship with the living Savior, and their characters Reveal defects, both hereditary and cultivated. Now, you and I are pretty comfortable with the idea of cultivated defects. You know, we go through life, we do stupid things, we form stupid habits, and so we kind of understand cultivated uh, defects in our character. But she's talking about not just cultivated defects in our character, but hereditary defects in our character. A hereditary defect is Something that's passed on from a previous generation. So we're get, she's saying there are things in your character that you didn't cultivate, but you inherited. And what is character? So elsewhere she says that thoughts and feelings combined make up moral character. Okay? So, said another way, our thoughts and feelings reveal defects that are hereditary in nature. We think certain ways, we feel certain ways, not merely because we've done stupid things as human beings since birth, but we think certain ways and we feel certain ways because we've inherited some of those stupid ways of doing things. Those who put their trust in Christ are not to be enslaved by any hereditary habit. Now, again, we tend to think of habits as things that we form through repetitious behavior. But she's identifying here a different category of habit, a habit that comes because we inherited it from a different generation. Whatever may be your inherited or cultivated tendencies to wrong, we can overcome through the power that he is ready to impart. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation. This is the verse we're looking at. By inheritance... And example, right? So, example is kind of the intuitive one, right? We watch our parents, they do some things that maybe aren't the best things, and we sort of pick up those things. It's kind of natural. Uh, observation deepens impression, we see it, so we take those things in. But she's also saying by inheritance, the sons become partakers of the father's sin. Wrong tendencies, perverted appetites, and debased morals, as well as physical degeneracy and disease, are transmitted as a legacy. So yes, there is this physical component to things. You know, somebody's dad has heart disease, somebody's mom has breast cancer, so I'm I'm more likely to have those kinds of issues. But there's also wrong tendencies, perverted appetites, and debased morals that are transmitted as a legacy. Now, this is an important point here in the last one, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Mercy is promised not merely to the third and fourth generation, but to thousands of generations. So, God's work, so there's all these influences coming to bear in our experience, right? We've got this genetic heritage that's negative. It can be positive too, but is negative. But God's working to oppose those tendencies. So, we're passing things on to our generations, but He's working, injecting mercy into our experience to try and oppose those trends that are occurring in our experience. A few more statements similar to this. There is every phase, of human, uh, every phase of character received by children as an inheritance. Human judgment and ideas are subject to hereditary traits of character. So again, the way we think, our judgment, the ideas we have, subject to hereditary traits of character. Some have had a quick temper transmitted to them. Children inherit inclinations to wrong. They have inherited an appetite for stimulants, and we'll look at some more Uh, data about that in just a minute. Now, the popular press is aware of all these phenomena, so I'm just going to go through a couple of these examples. Um, Blame it on your mom. Roots of adult diseases traced back to the Now, this headline just happened to be the mom, but um, you could put dad in there, too. There's plenty of data about dads. Um, But again, there's this sort of, you know, Don't be too responsible yourself. Find someone else to shift responsibility to. Blame it on your mom, roots of adult disease, trace back to the Sins of the, not the fathers, but the grandfathers. What happens in Vegas could affect your offspring. How early life experiences could cause permanent changes in sperm and eggs. Born to be bad, genetic research says maybe argumentative parents pass on behavior problems to children, to their kids. Well, here, this is a better one, born happy. So it's not all negative, right? Parents, we as parents can do positive things and, and shift those things down the generations. Born happy, geneticists have been claiming that DNA explains human traits as complex as schizophrenia, alcoholism, even happiness. DNA, relax, have a drink. Here's another one of those. It's not your fault, it's your DNA's fault. You just come home from a 10-hour, 15-hour day find the kids whining and the dog had an accident on the carpet. Well, how should we deal with this? Stressful day at work, kids are acting up, dogs had an accident. Breathe deeply, count to 10, do some yoga. We would say, you know, pray, meditate, get a hug from your wife. No, forget it. Where's the vodka? If this is you, don't blame yourself. Blame your DNA. So there's this, this story that goes through the popular press many times. That listen, don't take responsibility, b- blame your DNA. But we have a different story to tell, right? We're not here to tell a victim story. We're not here to be victims. We're here to tell a victor story. God's gonna give us deliverance from this. We wanna see how that works here in just a few minutes. Why the young kill? And this is, didn't come through. Are, you, are certain young brains predisposed to violence? Maybe, but how these kids are raised can either save them or push them over the brink. The biological roots of violence. So and there's a whole area we could talk about related to the nature of violence. Typically there are genetic predispositions to violence, but typically those don't manifest themselves unless you grow up in an environment of abuse or a violent type of environment. So so if you just have a violent home by itself, it's a low likelihood that you grow up to be a violent person. If you have the genes but no environment, you probably won't grow up to be violent. But if you have both of those, it doesn't mean you're going to be that way. It just means you have a higher likelihood of ending up with a violent kind of experience. Criminal violence reflects the dark. Now, this this quote's actually very good because they, they get the balance right. Criminal violence reflects the dark hand of biology, life experiences, and surrounding culture. So What are they saying here? They're saying these types of things, behavior, is a multifactorial experience. The feel-good gene, there's another positive one, but pretty much anytime you have a statement that says there's a gene for something, that's not the right way to say it. There are no genes for specific behaviors. These things are all very multifactorial. So anytime you see something like the feel-good gene, or the drinking gene, or the gay gene, for example, you can pretty much say that doesn't fit the research really at all. Now, genes are influential. They have impacts. But there is no defining character between a gene and an outcome. There's no one gene for one behavior. That just doesn't exist. Survey of Identical Twins links biological factors with being gay. Is our behavior written in our genes? So we as Seventh-day Adventist Christians want to be foremost... I should say, in being the most caring, loving, and ministering people to people that struggle with same-sex attraction. And we don't have a history of doing that. Homosexuals are not the enemy, right? So our job isn't to oppose them or attack them. Our job is to bring clarity to the conversation, right? Is there a gay gene, or are there genetic influences that might be in that way? And if we have time today, we'll look at those a little bit. Just a brief little... um, biology lesson here. Uh, This is sort of a a regular cell there. You can see there in the red. And in that cell, there's something called the nucleus. And that's where you see that's where you see uh, all these things called chromosomes. Now, chromosomes are just very large molecules that carry the DNA. Okay, and that's the green stuff over here. This is the DNA. They have these little base pairs. These are all This is where the the information of your genetic uh, makeup is encoded. Now in your chromosomes, besides DNA, you have all these other things, these other proteins um, that are carried with them and little markers on them. And those are the things that make up what we call the epigenome. Epi just means above the genome, so the things that are there on top of or in addition to um, the genes. Now we have about uh, 20 to 25,000 genes in our makeup, about the same as a fruit fly. So the fruit flies have 20,000 genes, so do we. Now you'll notice up here in the top left, we as individuals in every cell, almost every cell, have 46 of those chromosomes. We got 23 from mom, 23 from dad. You can see this was a guy, if you get two X's, an X from mom and an X from dad, you're a female. If you get an X from mom and a Y from dad, you're a male. So, but all these other 20, 22 are all matched up. So we have 46 chromosomes. Now any given two of us right next to each other have about 99.9% of our genes very similar, right? There's about 1% of our, our genetic uh, production that's different than each other. Identical twins are 100%. We share about 96% of our genetic makeup with chimpanzees, and we share about 50% with bananas. So. <laughs> If you look at the enzymes that a banana tree produces, we have about 50% of the same things that a banana produces. So I don't know if that's good or bad, that's just the way it is. Now there's a lot of information packed in this DNA. So if you looked at the small, one of the largest cells um, that we have in the body, it's about the size of a period at the end of a sentence. if you look at a regular book, look at the period at the end, that's about the size of a female egg cell. That's one of the bigger cells in the body. Now, one-tenth of that little period is the size of the nucleus of the cell. That's this part right here. Now, if you stretched out all the DNA in that one cell, it'd stretch out to be about six feet. So one-tenth of the period at the end of a sentence has six feet of DNA in it. So there's a lot of information packed in there. Those little base pairs right there, there's about three billion of those um, in our, each cell. Now, so you've got this DNA which has all this information, but it's not very functional unless it actually can produce something. And the main thing that DNA produces ultimately is proteins. And there's two steps it has to go through to do that. One is called transcription. So you can think of a business analogy, right? When you have someone at work transcribe something for you, they're just writing something down that you're dictating to them, right? They're transcribing it. Now, is it the same language when they transcribe it? Yeah, it's the same language, right? They're just transcribing it for you. And the same thing here. So with transcription, we go from DNA to a messenger that's going to carry this information outside the, the nucleus, out to the regular rest, rest of the part of the cell. And then there's another process that's going to go on called translation. Now, translation implies what? A change of language, right? So we're not going to still be DNA, a nucleic acid, or RNA, a nucleic acid. We're going to start making proteins from that. Okay, so that's translation that goes on. And every one of these steps is very highly regulated. There's all sorts of little processes that go on to regulate this, and this is where the epigenome comes in. So, in the epigenome, there's all sorts of different, and these are just the ones that we're beginning to learn about, there's all sorts of different mechanisms whereby the body and each cell individually regulates turning genes on and off, or how active they are. It's almost, rather than an on-off switch, it's more like a dimmer switch. So they can turn those genes up so there's a lot of stuff being produced, or they can turn them down so there's not very much being produced. And these are all the different, one of the different ways that the body has to produce control in the genome. Now, a couple, one more slide here, just so we have some terminology down before we look at some studies. Now, when you read information about genetics, um, they'll talk about the F0, F1, F2, F3, F4 generation. So I'm just going to pretend I'm a mother for a second, right? So I'm, I'm F0, right? Now, if I got pregnant, I would have a baby inside of me. That baby would be F1, the first generation, okay? Now, inside that baby in my womb, there are, if, if it's a female uh, baby, there's egg cells. If it's a male baby, there's sperm cells. That would be the F2 generation. Okay, Now, if that baby is born, and then its baby is born, and then that baby has a baby, you've got now the third generation. right? That would be called the F4 generation. Okay. Does that make sense? Parents F0, children F1, grandchildren F2, great-grandchildren F3, and, and so on down the line. Now, as we experience life, there's different ways that we can uh, affect each other and affect ourselves. So one is just a prenatal exposure. So I'm a mother, I'm exposed to something. It could be uh, something in the environment, it could be a relationship, it could be abuse at home, it could be a positive relationship. I'm going through some experience or being exposed to something, okay? Now that can affect my baby, right? We call that prenatal exposure, right? Now if whatever that interaction is doesn't have any effect on the sperm cells or the egg cells in that fetus, it stops there. The mom is affected, the baby's affected, done, prenatal exposure. Now, if it does affect the sperm or egg in the mother, I'm sorry, in the, in the fetus, then we call that multi-generational exposure. So I'm exposed as a mother, my baby's exposed, and the potential grandchild is exposed because that's those sperm and egg cells are in that fetus in my womb. We call that multi-generational exposure. Now, the, the transgenerational exposure means that not only is my, the sperm and egg cells in the fetus exposed, but the DNA is changed, okay? So I'm changing either the genetics or the epigenetics of the fetus and or the sperm and egg cells that are there. Now that's gonna be carried on through transgenerations. So if it's affecting the DNA or the epigenetics, it's not going to just gonna be carried into my, my grandchild, it's gonna continue on through uh, history. Does that make sense, that difference between multigenerational and transgenerational? Okay, so let's look at a couple studies um, that will help us clarify this a little bit. Now, I don't know how many of you, when you were growing up, um, if you had like a smudge on your face, you're like you know, five years old, and your mom would look at you and she sees a smudge on your face, what would your mom do? Yeah, she'd lick her fingers and then she'd rub it off, right? And what would you do? Yeah, you go, oh, it's gross, or, you know, your hair's out of place, you lick her fingers and then do your hair. I didn't like that either. But if you're a mouse, that's like the best kind of mothering. So if you're a good mouse mother, you lick your babies a lot, you groom them a lot, and you, you, you what's called arched back nursing. You want those babies to be able to get, get to their food, so you arch your back and you leave plenty of room so they can actually enjoy uh, their meal. That's a good, a good mouse mother. Lots of licking, lots of grooming. Now if you're that kind of mother, you have a mouse that's very, uh, very functional, is very low stress, doesn't get anxious, reacts well to, to new stimuli. Now if you're a bad mother, you don't lick your kids very much, you don't groom them very much, you don't arch your back so they can have breakfast, you kind of curl up a little bit. And if you're that kind of mother, what happens then? Then your babies are anxious, they're very skittish. In new circumstances, they, like if they're in a box, they'll run to the darkest corner of the box, they're very skittish. So this mothering then has an influence on the behaviors of their children. Well, so they've, they've advanced this a little bit now. And so they're wondering, well, why, why is that? Well, the normal response would be, well, either it's something in their genes, so uh, a good mother, has something in her genes, and what she does is, she passes that on to her kids, and they tend to be low-anxiety kinds of mice. Or a bad mother, she has these anxious genes, and she passes that on to her kids. That's one explanation. Now, what they found, though, was, it wasn't just genetic. When they looked at the brains of the offspring, they found several different things. Number one, they looked at the brains, and these mice had bigger hippocampi. There's an organ in your brain called the hippocampus, and that's one of the stress-regulating centers in your brain. So if you had a good mother, what happened was you had a bigger hippocampus, and then when they tracked the DNA changes, they found that you had a lot less what they call methyl groups. Now, if you go back a couple slides, remember we talked about methylation. Remember, DNA methylation, histone methylation. So if you're a good mother and you lick your baby a lot, what happens is there's changes that occur in your mouse brain, and those changes in your mouse brain actually have changes in the genetic regulation. So a good mom is a high grooming, a high licking of their pups, and that causes the release of serotonin, which is one of the good uh, hormones in the body. You have a larger hippocampus, you have less cortisol release. So cortisol is one of your stress hormones. So if you're growing up with a bad mouse mother, and you encounter a stressful experience as you get older, your cortisol goes up. When your cortisol goes up, you get very anxious, very nervous, and uh, you can't deal with that very well. So what is this showing us then? Now, you might say, like, well, maybe it's just it's, it's, it's the genetic thing. So what they did was they took the mice from the bad mother over here, and they gave her to the good mother. And they found out, sure enough, if you took the the children from the bad mother and gave them to the good mother, they came out less stressed again. So it wasn't something that was passed on directly from the genes of the mother. It was something that had to do with the way she related to them after they were born. So it wasn't passed on in her chromosomes, but their DNA in in their brains was changing as they experienced the mother licking them and grooming them and taking care of them. So this is powerful because this is describing that an experience that we have, a social interaction, is actually changing, number one, our brain architecture or their brain architecture, and number two, it's changing the the genetic regulatory mechanisms in their minds. That's a powerful principle that we have there. What I take away from that is how we treat each other actually matters. So we have the ability by how we relate to other people, to adjust their hormone levels, you know, I could have somebody standing here, and they could start kind of heckling me. And I'd get maybe a little more nervous. My cortisol level would go up. I'd start, you know, reorienting the receptors in my brain. Uh, methylations would be changing. Or I could have someone come up and, and give me a hug and say, "Thank you. That was a blessing. I appreciate that." And now my cortisol goes down. My serotonin goes up. How we relate to each other matters. We have the ability to be powerful interactors with each other. So this just uh, kind of brings out the mechanism a little bit here between the adrenal glands, where the cortisol is released, and the hippocampus, where that stress uh, effect takes place. So here's the author's conclusion about this, uh, this whole part of things. We propose that effects on chromatin structure, such as those described here, serve as an intermediate process that imprints dynamic environmental experiences on the fixed genome. So what are they saying there? I have an experience. I have an interaction with someone. I'm exposed to something. So some type of environmental interaction occurs. And what happens? That imprints itself on my genome. So an experience is changing my genome. We can do things as we relate to each other, as we relate to ourselves, that actually affect how our genome is expressed. That's a powerful tool. Now this isn't just uh, in humans. I'm sorry, this isn't just in mice, this is in humans. Now this scale here shows uh, three axes. So this is hippocampal volume. So that's the size of that organ in your brain that we talked about that deals with how stress works. Has other functions too. So the bigger your hippocampus, the better you deal with stress generally. Better your memory is, there's other things like that, but generally deals with stress. Now, if your mom had a lot of depression, you tend to have a smaller hippocampus. If you tended to have a poor relationship with your mom, didn't feel like you had good support, you also tend to have a smaller hippocampus. And in fact, if you have both of those factors, a depressed mom and poor support from your mom, you have a really small hippocampus, okay? On the other hand, if you have a mom who didn't have depression and was very supportive, you've got the biggest of the hippocampuses, okay? Now again, I just want to reiterate here, the temptation is going to be, when you see defects in your children, to feel guilty about it, right? That's that's why I put that first slide up there, right? Don't feel that way. Jesus is attractive, okay? That's the way we want to approach these things. We're just looking here at principles of action and and understanding how we can relate to each other and to others in a way that that builds them up, that grows their hippocampus, that reduces their cortisol, that elevates their serotonin levels. So don't feel guilty about this, just take this as information that helps us understand how we work. This is a study that shows, again, uh, children at school age um, correlates with the depression level. So if you look here on the right, here's uh, the child's cortisol level, here's the mother's depression score, and sure enough, as mother's depression score goes up, depression goes up. I'm sorry, cortisol goes up. Same thing here. This is a scale with mother's anxiety, mother's depression, and as those go up, um, this one is a little more specific. It actually talks about methylation uh, in, the, in the children. So same thing we looked at in the mice, right? We looked about the methylation in the mice. Same thing's happening in humans here. As anxiety goes up in the mom, as depression goes up in the mom, these methylation levels go up also. Well, here's a little bit of uh, more good news. This just points out that, yes, parenting can have a positive or negative effect on the children, but interestingly, the kids' actions can have a positive or negative effect on the parents' parenting styles. So even if you're not perfect as a parent, your kids can be reacting to you in a way that makes your parenting even more challenging. Now, this is a fascinating study. Um, in this study, what they did was they took mice and they exposed them to a certain smell. And then shortly after they got exposed to that smell, they gave them a little, a little zap, a little shock. Okay, so smell, zap, smell, zap, smell, zap. They did this over the course of some hours and several days. And then after they'd kind of gone through this conditioning period, and the mouse, of course, would jump back when it got zapped and got a little paranoid, so after a period of times of conditioning or training these mice, then they would expose them to just the smell, and guess what the mouse would do? He'd get scared. No, no shock, but just the smell alone would cause him to, to, to retract back, get anxious, get fearful, sit in the corner, waiting for something negative to happen. Okay, that's not very surprising. So then they took that mouse okay, and mated it with some females, and then they took the children of that mouse and exposed those mice to the smell. Now, what do you think happened to the children? Now, they'd never smelled it before. They'd never gotten zapped with it before. But when they smelled that smell, what do you think happened? They got anxious. They got fearful. So then they took those mice, the children now, bred them. Now we're on to the grandchildren, right? Exposed them to the same smell. What do you think the grandchildren did? Same thing, expose them to the smell. The grandchildren mice get fearful and back off, get nervous, have high stress levels. Now, they've never been shocked with the smell before, but something was passed down. Their genes changed, their brain changed. These pictures here, uh, you can see here on the left, this is the mouse that hasn't been uh, exposed and zapped, and this is a part of the brain that just shows how much bigger that is. So that original mouse that was exposed to that smell and and had those experiences, getting zapped, being fearful, their brain changed with that. And that brain change got passed down to their children and to their children's children, to the third and fourth generations. It's powerful how science is delineating these same kinds of things that we see. Here's their conclusion uh, in this study. In summary, we have begun to explore an underappreciated influence on adult behavior. Ancestral experience before conception. Now, just think of what they're saying here. Ancestral experience before conception. From a translational perspective, our results allow us to appreciate how the experiences of a parent before even conceiving offspring markedly influence both structure and function in the nervous system of subsequent generations. Such a phenomenon may contribute to the etiology and potential intergenerational transmission of risk for neuropsychiatric disorders such as phobias, anxiety, and PTSD. Generations can inherit information. Now, they're using phobias, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder just because that was the nature of the study. But I would submit that based on what we read in the Bible, read in the Spirit of Prophecy, and other literature that we're not looking at today, you could make that same statement for almost anything. The way we experience our environment changes who we are. Those changes get passed down. This is one of the experts in the field. He commenting on this type of research. The relationship between behavior and the epigenome is bilateral. Behavior could result in epigenetic programming and epigenetic programming can affect behavior. These things work both ways. Now, for time's sake, I'm going to skip some of these other studies. Um, This study here just proves that this goes on not just to the children and grandchildren, but to the the, uh, great-grandchildren. That was the main purpose of that. Um, This one was interesting uh, also because in this study, it was a little bit different than the one I just talked about, but the great-grandchildren of the mouse who had the original experience, it was a negative uh, kind of thing. When they would take those boy mice, now the great-grandchildren, and they would put them with female mice, the female mice picked up on something and they didn't want to mate with those mice. We don't know what they picked up on, but they picked up on something, they wouldn't mate with those guy mice. So I was thinking about that. So probably the analogy would be, if you had a problem with a girl in high school that wouldn't date you, it may not have been that you hadn't started using deodorant yet. It may have been something your grandparents did that was the problem. So I took some comfort in that. those, those, those uh, banquet rejections, remember, from Academy, it might not have been your fault. It could have been your grandparents' fault. So I took, I took courage from that. Okay, so proof of principle here now. Though. What have we just developed with some of this data? Experiences in mammals can cause changes in brain anatomy and the epigenome. These changes in brain anatomy and epigenome can be passed on to future generations. Okay, we're just kind of resetting ourselves here now the experiences of the subsequent generations will be conditioned or influenced by the experiences of their ancestors, even if they never experienced something similar. See, it actually matters how we relate to each other, right? We can, can like, inject positive things into people, right? We can, like, do things that raise people's cortisol levels, or we can lower them. Like Ruben's a friend of mine here, right? Stand up, Ruben, with an illustration. So if I give Ruben a hug, I feel better right now. (laughs) I can feel my cortisol going down. It's always nervous being up front, right? My cortisol is going down, my serotonin's going up, I'm demethylating a little bit. Good things are happening, right? So we joke about it, but we as Christians have the ability to to really elevate the experience of those around us. You know, I was really impressed with um, just recently when, I don't know how many people were in San Antonio for the pathways to Health. One of the things I read in the paper, the airport was a a zoo um, the day people left. And one of the things in the newspaper was, despite the fact that there were long lines, everybody was very patient and very nice. Now if you took a non, I like to say, if you took a non-Christian crowd, I don't think that would be the case. But I'm glad to say that, yeah, we were patient, we were understanding, and we worked through the process. So we were elevating people's serotonin, hopefully, and lowering their cortisol levels and reorienting their brain architecture. Now, for time's sake, I'm just going to skip through these next few slides. These slides basically make the point that, so when I did the multi-generational things in mice, I just wanted, these are just to show that there's multi-generational effects in humans also. Um, So we'll skip that for time's sake. Now, one of the other points that we want to make is, we always think of identical twins as very similar. But the the more interesting thing is, why are they so different? They're not all that similar in many ways. Now, you look at the top row, they all look very, very similar. But these on the bottom, these two mice are identical twins. Exact same genetics. Every cell in your body is an identical twin to every other cell in your body, right? Every cell your body has got the same DNA. But I've got hair, I've got skin cells, I've got heart cells, I've got brain cells, I've got muscle cells. They're all identical twins in your body, but they're all so different. Well, why is that? Now, here's a study where we have twins who are three years old, here and here, and twins who are 50 years old, here and here. And notice the difference in the color. Now, the coloration has to do with epigenetic markings. So when you're three years old and you get checked with your identical twin, your epigenetic markings are very similar, lots of yellow, lots of yellow. Not very much red or green. Red and green is differences between the epigenetic markings on twins. But now when you're 50 years old, look what happens. Lots of red and green, meaning lots of epigenetic differences, and not very much yellow at all. So what's happening is what's that telling us? So even identical twins, right? relatively similar environments, right? Even identical twins, as they move through life, their experiences are changing their their DNA, their epigenetic markings. Just want to look at alcoholism before we run out of too much time here. So, and this, similar numbers would apply for um, almost all substance abuse issues. So there's a concordance rate or correlation rate of about 60% for alcoholism between identical twins. what does that mean? That means if I'm an identical twin and I'm an alcoholic, about 60% of identical twins in that situation would be alcoholic also, okay? It's not 100%, right? If it was purely genetic, it'd be 100%, right? Because they have the same genes, right? Now fraternal twins, they have only a 30% concordance rate, meaning if I have a twin, maybe say sister, so we're not identical, it's fraternal, okay? And I'm an alcoholic, there's a 30% chance that my non-identical twin sibling will be an alcoholic. So what, what information do I take from that? I take from a, uh, one point. Number one, this issue, in this case it's alcoholism, we could talk about almost anything. It's not 100% genetic or it would be true for both pairs and the twins, right? If it's 100% genetic, both twins are going to experience it but it's not 100% environmental either because there is a difference between identical twins and fraternal twins. So there's a genetic component to alcoholism, and there's an environmental component to alcoholism. And again, that's just representative. We could talk about almost anything, and it'd be very similar to that. Almost every behavior you and I can think of has a genetic influence and an environmental influence on it. Um, and we won't go through the rest of those numbers for time's sake. Uh-huh. I'm sorry? The oh. until I think we go till 445. So, and I'd like to leave a little bit of time for questions afterwards, if possible. All right, so here's the conclusion. Now, we're going to read this conclusion. Then we're going to read some Ellen White quotes. And you tell me if this isn't, again, Ellen White wrote 100 plus years ago. These guys are writing, this is from, I forget what year this is, the last 10 years. Um, you're going to see very, very similar uh, component of what these people are saying, what Ellen White said. The convergence of findings from a wide range of genetically informative research designs, including adoption, family twin studies, provides compelling evidence suggesting that alcohol, nicotine, cannabis, and other illicit drug dependence are influenced, notice the word, influenced by heritable factors. Not determined, but influenced by heritable factors. Despite this, There is nothing deterministic about the genetic basis or the environmental basis, for that matter, to addiction. So again, this is bringing out this point. Both of these factors are important. It's not one or the other. There's no gene, I'm sorry, no single gene that causes addiction, but multiple genes of modest, cumulative, and interactive effect that shape the liability to addictive behaviors. Now again, I'm just giving you this as an example. Right? Alcoholism, any substance abuse kind of issue would fall into this category. But I can tell you, almost every behavior that's been studied is like this, including uh, same-sex attraction, since that's a popular one now. So you you could fill in the blank, right, okay? We're influenced by heritable factors, but nothing deterministic about the genetic basis to addiction or any other behavior. There's no single gene that causes addiction, but multiple genes of modest cumulative interactive effect. That's a principle you should take home with you. Now here's Ellen White's comments, and see if you don't see the exact correlation between what she says and what the the conclusion of that previous study was. Our ancestors have bequeathed us, I'm sorry, bequeathed to us customs and appetites which are filling the world with disease. The sins of the parents through perverted appetite are with fearful power visited upon the children to the third and fourth generations. Intemperance in drinking tea and coffee, wine, beer, rum, and brandy, the use of tobacco, opium, and other narcotics has resulted in great mental and physical degeneracy, and this degeneracy is constantly increasing. So do you see this? She's saying the same thing that they were saying as as the results of their research, exactly the same thing. Let old and young remember that for every violation of the laws of life, nature will utter her protest. It does not end with a guilty trifler. The effects of his misdemeanors are seen in his offspring, and thus hereditary evils are passed down even to the third and fourth generations. Okay, I'm going to read about three or four slides now from experts in the area of genes and behavior interactions. And I just want you to see how they articulate this whole thing. I zipped through some of the evidence just for time's sake. But I want you to see how they articulate... And don't just tell me if you're seeing exactly what the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy were outlining there. It's well established, of course, that environmental effects like radiation, which alter the genetic sequences in a sex cell's DNA, can leave a mark on subsequent generations. Okay, just stop there for a second. Okay, yeah, we understand if you experience a lot of radiation, your DNA is going to change. All right, we understand that. Likewise, it's known that the environment in a mother's womb can alter the development of fetus. Okay, we understand that, right? Things happen, Fetus is in the womb, changes occur. What's eye-opening, now again, this is an expert in the field saying this is eye-opening, is a growing body of evidence suggesting that the epigenetic changes wrought by one's diet, behavior, or surroundings can work their way into the germline and echo far into the future. Now, are you hearing the third and fourth generation idea coming through in secular literature? All right? Put simply, what you eat or smoke today could affect the health and behavior of your great-grandchildren. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that good news or bad news? It depends on how you relate to your environment, right? We we have Power to interact and give good things to our kids and good things to those around us. I mean, if we didn't have that, we'd just all be isolated individuals, right? It's a blessing that we can enter into a relationship with each other and elevate the experience of others, right? We can drag it down, but we can elevate it. All of these discoveries are shaking the modern biological and social certainties about genetics and identity. Now is so now he's going to see what the common thinking is. We commonly accept the notion that through our DNA we are destined to have particular body shapes, personalities, and diseases, right? That's kind of the mantra that you hear many times in the popular press. Gene as fate has become conventional wisdom. Through the study of epigenetics, that notion at last may be proved outdated. Suddenly for better or worse, we appear to have a measure of control over our genetic legacy. Again, Is that good news or bad news? It has the potential to be the huge good news, but we have to relate to that information in the right way. We have to make decisions to say, I'm gonna increase the goodness of of God in in my sphere of influence. I'm gonna elevate people's serotonin levels. I'm gonna relate to them with the love of Christ. I'm gonna elevate their experience. Epigenetics is proving we have some responsibility for the integrity of our genome. Before genes, before genes predetermined outcomes, that's how people used to think. Now everything we do, everything we eat or smoke can affect our gene expression and that of future generations. Epigenetics introduces the concept of free will, entirety of genetics. We have the ability to impact ourselves and others in a way that just elevates them. That's what God gave us this freedom for, Right? God gave us freedom to elevate each other, to enter into a relationship with each other, to bless each other. That's a powerful tool we have. Now, this is a summary. Now, this, I didn't take this from, you know, some Adventist source, right? This is a secular source, and they're saying, well, what are all the things that affect our epigenetics? Well, basically, it's, it's the eight laws of health and the gospel, right? Diet, sleep. Uh, disease exposure, uh, temperance, avoid toxic chemicals and drugs of abuse, exercise, uh, eating right, and the gospel, social interactions and psychological state. This is a secretary there saying, listen, all these things affect your epigenome. And we have the ability, Seventh-day Adventist Christians, to interact in a positive way with every single one of those. What a body of literature Ellen White has given us to deal with every single one of these things, and the science is just bearing that out. Um, This just kind of reiterates the things we've talked about. So basically this is saying that the environment, the behavior, and the gene expression are all influencing each other all the time. Now again, we're running out of time, so I'm going to move a little little quickly through some of this. So genes and behavior. This is a book by Michael Rudder. He's now Sir Michael Rudder. They knighted him. He's probably one of the top gurus in the relationship between genes and behavior. I just need to make one point here. So this is his statement and then we'll look at Ecclesiastes. Genetic influences operate in a probabilistic, not deterministic fashion. So there's an element of, and I don't like this word, but chance actually that happens in our destinies. So when things are happening as you, uh, as you were a little one cell or a fetus growing up, things were happening. It's not always things influencing that make it go a certain way. There's just chance sometimes that something goes one way versus the other, right? That's part of the experience in a fallen sinful world. And and, uh, uh, Solomon brings this out. The race is not to the swift, meaning what? The fastest guy doesn't always win. There's other factors that come to play. The battle's not to the strongest. The strongest guy doesn't always win, right? He'll usually win. I mean, if you watch sports at all, the favorite doesn't always win. Well, why is that? The best team doesn't always, because there's other factors that come into play in any given situation. Nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the men of understanding, nor favored to men of skill, but time and chance happen to all of us. So there is that element to keep in mind when you're understanding this whole genes and behavior situation. Any dispassionate but critical review of the research leads to the clear conclusion that there are substantial genetic and environmental effects on almost all types of behavior. This would include sexual behavior. Now, I, I don't have time to talk about this. Uh, this. is I was going to talk about sexuality, homosexuality, for about five minutes, but we don't really have time for that. But I just want to make two comments. Um, number one, to read this verse, which is, as Christians, probably all we need to know. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were... Some of you, past tense, present tense. Past tense, right? This is a promise. Paul was interacting with these same cultural issues. It's not new. Right? We think it's new in the last five or ten years. It's the same issue ten thousand years ago. And what he said: Such were were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of your God. That's good news. We just need to understand how to apply that verse in a Christ-like manner to those who are struggling, right? Homosexuals are not the enemy. They're candidates for the kingdom of God, and we need to relate to them that way. We need to to be informed about the ideas. We need to understand these things. Um, So hopefully, you can apply the information you've already gotten so far to the idea that, that there is no gay gene, right? Now, just from what you've learned, do you think it's reasonable to assume that there are influences that come to bear in someone's experience that may move them towards same-sex attraction? Yes. yes. Is that determinative? No, but it's an influence, right? There's, and there's lots of things that be influenced someone in that direction. So we need to be sensitive to all those kinds of things. Um, I've read a moderate amount about this. If you, want to, if you have one hour to read on this topic, I would read this article, Same-Sex Science by Stanton Jones. He's the provost of Wheaton College. Very, very, very good article, one hour. If you have three hours to read, Understanding Homosexuality by Alan Schleimer from Stand to Reason. It's a Christian evangelical apologetics group. STR.org. Understanding Homosexuality. If you've got a day to read and you want to understand the theology in the Bible, best book Robert Gagnon's book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, it goes through all the scriptural references to that. If you want to have, if you want to have a conversation with someone about the idea that can homosexuality be changed in the modern society, peoplecanchange.com powerful testimonies. It's a Christian group. They're not, they're not extreme like some of the other Christian groups, but just a very measured, balanced, nuanced statement of people saying, listen, we, we grew up with this, we've, we've lived this lifestyle, and by the grace of God, we've been able to shift to a different lifestyle. Very powerful testimonies on there. And they have, they have uh, retreats and things like that, too, uh, on their website. So I just wanted to, to give you those resources, because we don't have time to, to spend completely on that. All right, so I've tried to, somewhat rapidly, um, kind of go through genetics and environment, epigenetics, parenting, all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, right, you have to admit that even though it's interesting to know why I do what I do, if I'm still struggling and failing, I'm less concerned about why I'm failing than that I am failing, right? Is it because I had habits that I've developed or habits my grandparents developed? I'm less concerned about why it's happening than the fact that it is happening. So we want to spend our last 10, 15 minutes together saying, if that's my situation, which it's all of our situations, how do we deal with that? Well, Job had this same question, right? He'd gone through a traumatic experience. And look at the questions he asked and see if you can relate to these. Speaking to God now, he says, he is not a man as I am. There's no mediator between us. Then he says this, do you have eyes of flesh? God, are you, are you processing my reality? I don't think you're processing the way I'm experiencing it. I'm suffering. I'm going through something. Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Do you hear the passion in his voice? The, basically the tears saying, God, do you understand what I'm going through? Well, how would, how would God answer that question? Well, Satan has an answer, right? Job chapter four, Satan speaking. Humanity is broken from morning to evening. They perish forever without anyone regarding. So Job's almost echoing the sentiments that Satan speaks there in Job chapter four. Do you have eyes of flesh to see? Well, how would God answer that? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as man sees? Well, he could just say, listen, I'm God. I'm omniscient. I know everything. So because I know everything, I know what you're experiencing. Now, would that be a true statement? Yes. Would that be particularly helpful? Yeah. So if you go to the oncologist, you have breast cancer or colon cancer, and he gives you the diagnosis, you're devastated, it's advanced, and he says, listen, I know what you're going through. I've had thousands of patients just like you that have gone through this experience. I understand what you're going through. Now, we would appreciate the courtesy of that comment, right? But if he's never had cancer, it would probably ring a little shallow, right? On the other hand, if you had one person who'd gone through cancer once and they said, I know what you're going through, wouldn't that carry more weight than the oncologist who's seen thousands of patients with cancer? The one patient who's gone through cancer carries more weight than the oncologist who's seen thousands of patients with cancer. God faces that same dilemma. Right? He knows what we're going through because he is omniscient. But we don't always appreciate that. And that's Job's statement here. Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as I see? Are your days like my days? Do you understand my experience? Well, how can God answer that, that, that question, that feeling that we have? This is how he answered it. God didn't need to gain information by coming down here to planet Earth. But we wouldn't appreciate, we wouldn't believe, we wouldn't understand and discern that he understands our experience unless he came down here and lived it with us. This being became one cell in a mother's womb and grew up from one cell to five cells to a fetus to a baby. And he had cells like we do. He had muscles. He had a body. Those cells had DNA in them. And that DNA had the same challenges and inheritance that we have. Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, what law is that? It's the same law that we're born under, right? Because he came to save those who were born under the law. We're born under the law of that genetic inheritance, that second commandment that says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the third and fourth generations. He was born under that same law. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So iniquity, the same iniquity that was visited on us, that is visited on us, was laid on him. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Compassion correlates with similar experience. That's why the one person with cancer can have a, a, a a more deep level of compassion with you than the oncologist who's seen thousands of patients with cancer, because they have a similar experience. Now, this is brought out, part of this is in Romans chapter 1. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. And the seed there is that word sperma, that epigenetic heritage that all of us experience. Right? I mean, Jesus had cells, right? And those cells had chromosomes, right? And those chromosomes had DNA. And that DNA had epigenetic markers, just like we do. He was a real man, we're told. It would have been an almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden. But Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. It's a great law. And he accepted the results of that great law. What these results were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors. He came with such a heredity to share our sorrows and temptations and to give us an example of a sinless life. He accepted the results of that great law of ready. Well, what were those? What heritage did he have? Is that good news or bad news? That's good news, right? So you, you were born with who knows what, right? We're all born with who knows what heritage, right? All sorts of defects and and degeneracies and things that our parents grandparents great-grandparents did and we are subject to those liabilities he was subject to those liabilities too and as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood he himself likewise shared in the same and all things he had to be made like his brethren and that he has suffered being tempted he's able to aid those who are tempted again in the fact that he was tempted like we are, we can have that courage. He's like, he's like the one cancer patient that can identify with our experience. He's not like the oncologist who says, listen, I've seen lots of people like you have gone through that. I know what you're going through because I've seen it so many times. That wasn't his experience. His experience was, I've had cancer too, and I've overcome it. For 4,000 years, the race had been decreasing in physical strength and mental power and moral worth. Christ took upon him the infirmities of degenerate humanity. Desire of Ages one seventeen. Christ must reach man where he was. He took human nature and bore the infirmities and degeneracy of the race. For what purpose, last sentence, that he might bring him up from the degradation which sin had plunged him? Christ knows by experience. Yes, he's omniscient. Yes, he knows everything. But he knows by experience what are the weaknesses of humanity? What are their wants? Where lies the strength of their temptations? For he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. It matters that he knows by experience, not because he gains information, but because we need that, we need that reality to believe that he really does understand our experience. He's really dealt with temptation as we have. Psalms 87 says this, The Lord will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. God understands where you were born, what your experiences were, what the liabilities you were born with. He, he's going to take into account. He understands this one was born there. Angels are ever-present where they are most needed. there with those who have the hardest battles to fight, with those who must battle against inclination and hereditary tendencies, whose home surroundings are the most discouraging. A genuine conversion changes hereditary and cultivated tendencies to wrong. I want to just finish with this uh, quote. This isn't new to Adventism. Here's one of our Adventist pioneers, A.T. Jones, in a book called The Consecrated Way. He just has a powerful statement here that sums up this whole thing. And again, this, this was before they knew what DNA was. This was before they knew what genes were. This was the epigenetic. They didn't know any of that stuff. They just looked at human nature. They looked at the Bible. They looked at the spirit of prophecy, and they understood. Only by his, speaking about Christ, subjecting himself to the law of heredity could he reach sin in full and true measure as sin truly is. There is in each person, in many ways, the liability to sin, inherited from generations back, which has not yet culminated in the act of sinning, but which is ever ready when occasion offers to blaze forth in the actual committing of sins. There must be met and subdued this hereditary liability to sin, this hereditary tendency that is in us to sin. Our liability to sin was laid upon him, in his being made flesh. Thus he met sin in the flesh which he took and triumphed over it. As it is written, God sending his own son in likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. To keep us from sinning, his righteousness is imparted to us in our flesh as our flesh with its liability to sin was imparted to him. Thus, both by heredity and by imputation, he was laden with the sin of the world and thus laden, At this immense disadvantage, he passed triumphantly over the ground where, at no shadow of any disadvantage whatsoever, the first pair failed. And by condemning sin in the flesh, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, he delivers from the power of the law of heredity. Amen. And so can in righteousness impart his divine nature and power to lift above that law and hold above that law every soul that receives him. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, Christ taking our nature as our nature is, and God dwelling constantly with him and in him in that nature. In this, God has demonstrated to all people forever that there is no soul in this world so laden with sins or so lost that God will not gladly dwell with him and in him to save him from it all and to lead him in the way of righteousness of God. And so certainly is his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. So we had this information over 100 years ago. We just need to grasp that by faith, uh, to remember that Jesus is attractive. Um, he's full of love, mercy, and compassion. I'll just finish with this one thought. Um, we have the opportunity to engage in this reality by f- laying aside every sin, I'm sorry, laying aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So I would encourage you, as you encounter in your experience whatever liabilities and habits that either you've cultivated or you've inherited, as you fix your eyes on Jesus, as you let those realities of his experience sink into your psyche, as you appreciate his goodness towards you, your cortisol is going to go down. Your serotonin, your dopamine is going to go up. Your hippocampus is going to get bigger. You're going to alter your epigenome. And you can have this same victory that uh, A.T. Jones talked about. I'm going to open things. I'm just going to have a closing prayer, and then we'll open things up for questions. I think we have maybe five minutes. People are welcome to stay by afterwards. Um, I don't want to keep people late, but let's just have a a closing prayer. And then if people want to ask questions, I'm happy to answer those. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that um, you know by experience uh, what we go through. When we have those days, when we ask the questions, uh, consciously or unconsciously, do you see as we see? Um, are your days like our days, as Job asked, that you can answer yes. You know by experience what we're going through. And you're offering us freedom from the cultivated and inherited tendencies that we've uh, developed so much in our experience. Lord, we want to be Seventh-day Adventist Christians that push back against the degeneracy and the fallenness in this world. We want to elevate people. We want to let them know that they matter. We want to boost their serotonin levels. We want to boost their dopamine levels. We want to train, change their brain anatomy. And it's the power of the gospel of treating others as you've treated us that allows that to occur. So as we leave this place, may we continue our study. May we continue to laugh with each other. May we continue to cry with each other. And may we keep our eyes fixed on you. We ask this in your son's name.